From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Walmart's new Project Gigaton aims to decarbonize its supply chain, a preview of Saturday's March for Science, and the cannabis industry's efforts to, well, go green. We're just blowing smoke this week on 350. It's April 21st, 2017. Happy Earth Week. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me this week, senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Joel. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, happy Earth Week. Happy <laughs> 420 Week. All kinds of <laughs> so many on. holidays this week. It's uh, it's interesting. It's, it's an annual thing, so keep them coming. So how are you celebrating Earth Week? Well, on Friday, uh, today, actually, this is we're recording this before that. Uh, I am in Dallas uh, at Dallas Earth Day, which is actually the largest Earth Day, uh, annual Earth Day event, maybe in the world. Uh, Trammell Crow, the heir of a, of a great development, uh, real estate developer, uh, Fortune, puts this on um, every year. It, it's 100,000 people in the fairgrounds in, in the Dallas area. Uh, quite an extravaganza. This is my first time there, but I've been hearing about it for years. Uh, I will be speaking Friday night along with my co-authors, uh, Buck Mickleby and Patrick Doherty, uh, before uh, kind of a banquet of what was described as sort of Republican high rollers that uh, Trammell puts on every year as part of this to talk about our new grand strategy book. He's been a big fan of that. He's been buying up uh, hundreds of copies and handing them out. So It'll be an interesting experience. Maybe I'll report back on that next week. Yeah, How about you? Definitely. We'll have to follow up on that. Um, I'm curious to hear actually what our senior writer, Barbara Grady, she's going to be at the Climate March this weekend. Um, but otherwise, just lots of lots of reporting going on. You teased it uh, in the, the beginning of the show, but I've been spending some time looking at California's evolving cannabis industry. So, you know, just taking one for the team to, to investigate. <laughs> oh, we appreciate that. Well, let's get right into it. It's time for the weekend review. So climate change continues to be in the news. Uh, the, the Trump administration is evaluating whether or not to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, we have the climate march, as you said, and we'll hear a little bit about that in a couple of minutes. Uh, we'll hear more about Walmart's new climate initiative, too. But we had a piece from Mark Trexler, who wheels himself as the chief climatographer um, at his organization called the Climatographers. I've known Mark uh, for maybe 20 years or so. He has been one of the pioneering uh, people in uh, climate mitigation, particularly working with companies in supply chains, uh, very early on work with companies like Ben and Jerry's and others to help them uh, re reduce their supply, uh, reduce their carbon footprint. Um, he wrote a piece for us called, Can We Really Solve the million piece climate puzzle. And what this is about is the fact that, as I think anybody who's looked at climate change knows, this is an incredibly complex, uh, even wicked problem with so many 
uh, different parts. He calls it the million pieces of, of the jigsaw puzzle. And the question is, are we really looking at it holistically? So, for example, um, he says there are very different views on what the completed puzzle should look like based on different tool sets, political worldviews, financial self-interest. In other words, what sort of success looks like or what how we think about climate from, you know, what we want the world to be in a warming world. Um, I asked, are we more committed to completing the puzzle our way than to the larger goal of getting the puzzle put together, our way being whoever our is in this case? Do we even only see parts of the puzzle that we want to see that are, are we most comfortable seeing, maybe uh, leaving out some of the implications for some of the poorest uh, citizens of the world, uh, looking more at you know how do we preserve our quality of life in the developed world, and so on. Really interesting questions, and and it's a just a he more he more asks the questions than answers them. But I think that's a really important part of this. Mm -hmm. And at the center of all of this, he puts obviously decarbonizing our energy systems eventually. So uh, one of the primary questions is sort of why are the, the pieces on climate action slow to come together? And he, he points to some of the, the factors that we obviously touch on periodically, like you've got self-interest among politicians, different interest groups. Um, but now with accelerating change and greater extremes in weather, I think the question is sort of how that equation may or may not start to shift in, in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading because it's just a great reminder of all of the, or many of the pieces that we have. It's uh, it's provocative to say the least. And speaking of provocative articles, our old friend, longtime friend, we'll call him Mark Gunther, uh, wrote a piece about B corporations. Those are the companies that uh, uh, have been certified to meet uh, certain kinds of standards of social and environmental performance uh, and get the B Corp label. Now, it's actually complicated because there's, and this is, uh, was baked in from the very beginning. I don't know why this happened, but it wasn't good design, from my opinion. There's something called B Corporations, and then there's uh, certified, there's benefit corporations too. Um, there's uh, a B Corporation is one that has passed the scrutiny of this of B Lab, which is the certification agency that uh, you know, is a voluntary thing. They've got uh, very few, uh, relatively few companies, but some big ones like Etsy uh, is a is a B Corp and, and a few others. But it's it, it, it's been evolving over the years. Uh, ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, New Belgium, Seventh Generation, Warby Parker are are, are some of the bigger names in this. They've got a couple thousand companies, mostly smaller ones. Uh, but that's that's not the same as benefit corporations, which is a legal entity in certain states where you can uh, basically designate uh, as a be benefit corporation that the financial bottom line isn't necessarily the only one. So for loss, the law says that boards of directors have to look out for shareholders' financial interests, their fiduciary that's the fiduciary responsibility of boards. But in this case, you might say, the company might say, well, we want to give 5 or 10% of our, of our profits to education or some other cause. And that's actually illegal, uh, or at least uh, it's, it's, it violates the fiduciary responsibility. But as a benefit corporation, you can legally be designated to do that, where investors, uh, shareholders, and others know that there are other bottom lines 
So the, so this is sort of this world of B Corps and benefit corporations and where it's going. And uh, as he says, it's confusing, to say the least. Yeah, I have to say it's always thrown me off when we get pitches or are talking to different companies that identify as benefit versus B Corps. Um, and Mark also has written recently about Etsy, the sort of arts and crafts marketplace, as it's known, based in Brooklyn, um, which is one of just two publicly traded B Corps in the United States. The other one, which was actually surprising to me, is Laureate Education, which is a chain of for-profit colleges. So sort of as you were alluding to, Joel, the, the upshot of the article for me is that sort of the, the question moving forward is if there, if we're going to see an evolution in the legal structures of these companies and, and sort of some solidifying of what it really means to to adopt this sort of structure, uh, if that means something different about your bottom line or where your profits are going. Um, but I'd also be curious sort of uh, who will ultimately hone those models, especially because we don't really expect it to be driven um, sort of at a, a regulatory approach, obviously sort of a different type of voluntary systems that are evolving in this case. And not last and definitely not least, there's this is 420 week, which is the become the uh, annual holiday for the cannabis devotees, I guess the cannabis industry. Uh, Lauren, you've been looking into uh, what's going on in that from an environmental perspective. What'd you find? It's a really busy space, believe it or not. So most people by now are probably reading the headlines about the legalization battles that have gone on in states like Colorado and Washington. Uh, most recently, California became the biggest legal cannabis market in the world when uh, voters last November went ahead and legalized that. Um, but the question is really sort of now moving into the, the domain of what agricultural companies and companies really in any industry have had to think about for a long time. And that's sort of um, as as they become professionalized, what sorts of certification options are out there? What sort of technologies are companies investing in? Um, and in this case, Joel, I know you joke about it, um, but sort of the, the transfer of knowledge between agriculture and marijuana that has always sort of been there in, in some form is really now becoming more solidified. In California, I talked to folks that come out of what used to be the fresh cut flower industry. There's actually a company down in the Monterey area of California. California that's led by um, the guy who started Costco's Fresh Cut Flower Program, and now he's in a business called Flourish, which is a commercial weed company. Um, so the the question is how knowledge of things like efficiency in watering, waste reduction, um, in in greenhouse or industrial spaces, some of the high tech stuff like vertical farming, how that can be sort of pioneered maybe in a higher margin space like uh, marijuana. Also, a lot of this is being tested in microgreens and sort of uh, high-end products that you see at stores like Whole Foods and then maybe translated to, to other food products as well. Um, another big issue in the marijuana space is uh, the lack of a federal organic certification. Obviously, since cannabis is still illegal at the federal level. There's no sort of federal certification. So you've got kind of this patchwork now of people trying to figure out um, how you get what can be dangerous pesticides out of the supply chain. But then for companies that want to go further than that, how can they be rewarded with sort of the, the marketing or um, operational benefits of an organic or sustainable label? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that transfer of knowledge that you mentioned, it's, it's really two-way that, um, f first of all, 
the, as the cannabis industry comes out of the shadows um, and into the mainstream and becomes uh, part of the legal economy, it's going to be able to take advantage of some of the the techniques that in which we grow produce and other things at scale. Um, it, and certainly, you know, how to do it with less energy because it's been grown indoors. It's very energy intensive. Less water. How it becomes, you know, drip irrigation and some of the other things. But the transfer of knowledge has also gone the other way. I think we've we've talked about this before. How uh, indoor ag urban ag, uh, vertical ag, uh, is really pulling a lot of, of know-how from the hydroponics and other things that were really, if not pioneered, at least commercialized in the cannabis industry. So it's, it's a two-way street, and we'll, it'll be interesting to see uh, you know, how each benefits from the other and, um, and what the standards are and uh, the problems are, the, are the, we going to get cannabis with pesticides? Is it going to be a market for organic or biodynamic or who knows what other kinds of cannabis? As this becomes, it's already, I think, correct, you probably know this, Lauren, isn't cannabis the largest cash crop already in California or something like that? Yeah, it depends so is, if you calculate on the books, off the books. Yeah. But in any case, it's big business and it's becoming a big part of of uh, the agricultural industry here in California, and I'm sure other parts of the country and the world. In fact, I know that um, in Kentucky and some of the other traditional tobacco growing states that for years uh, farmers have been looking into industrial hemp, and I wouldn't be surprised if they also start looking uh, as, as the laws ease up uh, at, at growing cannabis. Yeah, the the hemp question is definitely an interesting one in terms of of how you might see the the southeast in particular evolve, um, depending on what the attorney general does at the federal level. Jeff Sessions is not a fan of marijuana, it turns out. Um, but one thing that's really good, I think, to note here is to sort of zoom in on a specific company. So I talked to Amy Anderley and her team at Legal Services. It's a dispensary in downtown Denver, but they also operate uh, in an urban farming operation in the city's warehouse district that clocks in at just under 20,000 square feet. Um, and they're working on a bunch of really interesting efforts to um, dial down their energy usage, mostly looking closely at um, peak load management and uh, how they're, when how and when they're using energy. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to find a solar system that provides anywhere near enough energy for their grow operation. So that's one interesting area in all this to watch. Um, they also don't use any synthetic pesticides. They use natural alternatives like garlic oil. But one of the things that Amy said will be good to keep an eye on here is that the methods of consumption for marijuana are changing so quickly that that's going to make a lot of the sustainability challenges different from product to product. Um, so obviously, it's not just something that you smoke now, it can be a food, it can be concentrated, it can be in topical lotions and creams that people use for for things like back pain relief. Um, so it's a dynamic space, there's a lot of money in it. And this will be really interesting to watch evolve, I think. Earth 
birthday has been recognized with some level of activity every year since 1970. But this year, planning around the day has some extra heft because so many people are concerned about what might be in store for environmental protection under the Trump administration. The new presidential administration has talked about cutting the Environmental Protection Agency by 31% and also called for wiping out all climate programs at federal agencies. It's caused people to sit up and pay attention, and here to talk about plans for this Earth Day is senior writer Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So give us the the breakdown. What's happening this Earth Day coming up Saturday for folks who may be listening to this on uh, Friday, April 21st? Yeah. So the major thing happening nationally this Earth Day is the March for Science. So this march and rally, is, which is sponsored by some 170 partner organizations, will happen in Washington, D.C. And then hundreds of sister marches are planned around the world, according to the organizers. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, Lauren, the new administration wants to cut the EPA by 31%. And that cut includes eliminating many of the scientific research programs in the EPA. And then at the same time, in that proposed budget from the Trump administration, there are significant cuts to a whole bunch of other agencies like NASA, Earth Science, NOAA, the Department of Energy's Office of Science, the National Institutes of Health, are all slated for significant cuts. NOAA's research arm, for instance, would be cut something like 26%. So there's a lot of concern about this stuff. Yeah, definitely lots of, uh, we're talking about millions, billions of dollars at stake in terms of funding for research. And I'm curious what we know so far about the aim of the March for Science. Yeah, that's a good question, because my understanding is um, there's an effort to not make it too political or to actually avoid kind of politics. So the point of the March for Science is to express the value of science, how much it contributes to the advancement of civilization and, frankly, survival. So the group's mission statement is, quote, science should neither serve special interests nor be rejected based on personal convictions. At its core, science is a tool for seeking answers it can and should influence policy and guide our long-term decision-making. End quote. So that's what they're saying is their mission statement. And I've read and heard that among the various uh, sponsoring organizations, there are different viewpoints and kind of the consensus that they came to get to to move this forward was to just talk about the value of science and, and try to avoid the politics. Um, but... In the current kind of political atmosphere, there has been this disregard for science spoken, and so this is to stress the opposite, how necessary science is. Right, and you definitely, um, when you think about NASA, NOAA, uh, sort of the, all the weather and climate data that's generated by the federal government, um, Obviously, a lot of different types of science in play here. And I'm curious, one thing, though, um, I remember this was a big question before the COP21 climate talks in Paris a couple years ago as well. And that's sort of like, what is the role of business in this broader climate discussion? Um, I'm sure you'll know more once you actually uh, attend the event this weekend. But what do we know so far about how sustainability professionals or businesses are getting involved or not in the March for Science? 
Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Lauren. And that is actually exactly what I'm going to be listening for, listening for at the March. I'm curious, what is at stake for business and the possible loss of, loss of various federal science programs? So we know in general, that many of the breakthrough technologies that startups in Silicon Valley and elsewhere bring to market are technologies that have been developed at in research labs funded by the government. Often the individual entrepreneurs were researchers at universities and in labs before they bring things to market. And then also in large companies, the R&D is taking the kind of basic science of government labs and, and bringing it to application. So I think there's a lot at stake. Um, I've heard there will be company scientists involved in the march, or at least in in the part of it that is a, called the teach-in. The other thing that um, we all know from following business, you and I, that, that a lot of companies really depend on federal data for making strategic decisions, whether it's a food company planning how to source corn and dependent upon government information about where there are drought conditions, um, or farmers figuring out their planting seasons, or even, you know, like semiconductor chip manufacturers needing to know about their water supply. All those things are tracked by federal scientists. Yeah. And then there's the issue of science that isn't quite ready to come to market. So now there is a lot of government research going on in such things as carbon capture and sequestration and um, more going on in precision agriculture and battery storage, which has, you know, they've come to market, but they started in research labs. And, and my favorite example of a scientific tool, a tool that is everywhere in business is the laser because, you know, it's everywhere. It's in retail bar scans. It's in hospital diagnostic equipment, et cetera. But when the laser was invented in a federally funded you know, government research lab, nobody knew how it would be used or even if it was useful, including the inventors. Yeah, definitely. Lots of different ways this could all play out. And um, one of the yeah. things I'm particularly curious to see is sort of which companies, which industries are well represented. Um, and, and another thing out in our corner of the world, we've got Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Lawrence Livermore National Lab that run all kinds of interesting energy R&D programs. So we'll certainly continue to keep a close eye on this. And in the meantime, we will stay tuned for your story early next week, which sounds like it should be a great one. Thank you so much, senior writer Barbara Grady, for joining us. You're welcome, Lauren. Take care. So Walmart is doubling down on its climate change commitment. This week, the retail giant launched Project Gigaton, an initiative to remove one gigaton, that's one billion pounds, I sound like Dr. Evil in uh, Austin Powers, uh, of greenhouse gases from its supply chain by 2030. According to Walmart, this is the equivalent of removing 211 million passenger vehicles off the road for one year. The Environmental Defense Fund called this project a moonshot. Our associate editor, Anya Hollemeiser, spoke with Laura Phillips, Senior Vice President for Global Sustainability, about the ambitious announcement. Anya, what's going on here? First of all, what 
is a gigaton? Is that really big? Is that something? And how important is it that Walmart be delving into its supply chain? Right. That number, one gigaton, it's hard to imagine, especially when you're talking about gas emissions. Um, But one gigaton is one billion tons of greenhouse gases. And that's what Walmart is aiming to remove from its supply chain. Another way to visualize that, that is the equivalent of removing the annual emissions of Germany, the world's fourth largest economy from the atmosphere. So not just the cars from Germany, they're removing the entire German economy from uh, carbon equation. It's still not enough to, by itself, to make uh, or break, you know, the that that barrier that will launch the world into global warming. But every gigaton at this point counts. Uh, so the supply chain um, reaches really, really far. That includes scope three emissions that's a consequence of business operations, but which it doesn't fully control. So the emissions of its suppliers and the manufacturers of the products that it sells in stores. And according to Sustainability Consortium, the supply chain is responsible for 60% of all greenhouse gas emissions, 80% of water use, and 66% of deforestation. Um, But it's really difficult for one retailer to manage all of these emissions, especially when you're talking about an international retailer like Walmart. So the news here is that Walmart's showing leadership by creating a database, Project Gigaton, for the suppliers who want to participate. And... um, It's also important now in the government's cutting emissions reducing programs for consumer goods. For example, the Energy Star program is on the line. And I spoke to Laura Phillips, Senior Vice President for Global Sustainability at Walmart, and uh, she discussed how Project Gigaton fits into Walmart's already established sustainability goals. So how does this work? How is Walmart going to organize and disseminate this information to its tens of thousands of suppliers? First of all, is it even attacking or targeting all of those suppliers or just a subset? Project Gigaton is a platform or a digital toolkit that includes audio, clips, videos, and metric measurements about emissions. And that's a voluntary platform that it's distributed to its suppliers. And here's Laura discussing more detail about how the platform was developed. Yeah, we'll be launching this week a um, digital resource center. um, And in that digital resource center is pulled together solution set, if you will, of um, materials and videos, kind of all the information that we've been working on for more than 10 years, you know, with many partners across our supply chains, all in one place. And so we'll be offering that out to the suppliers so that they can learn what we've learned on some of these project areas. So how do you get started on setting an energy target? Um, How do you work on deforestation? Um, you know, again, if you're getting started, we'll give practical advice, and if you're advanced, we'll give more uh, more challenges. And then there's a join us section in the digital center that they can join in, send us a note, we'll work with them. We've also published methodology, so it'll help them understand how do I measure this stuff. And all the content was developed open source, so we uh, worked with um, many partners to develop all this content, and we'll be adding to it. You know, our vision is that we want to make this available for our suppliers. We make it available to everybody. So we want we want the whole supply chain to get better, and we know it, it takes everybody. So you said this is voluntary. It's not required. Walmart has done that in the past where it's encouraged its suppliers to, to participate in a number of different programs. How is Walmart going to make sure that suppliers are reaching these goals? Are there any incentives? Laura said that there are no business incentives, concrete incentives or punishments for the businesses to use them or, or not use the toolkit. But um, she said that 
they're going to Walmart is going to feature these sustainable suppliers on internal meetings, convene events with them for best practices, and generally highlight them the way that they've been doing with their sustainability index in the past. Uh, what's new here is that uh, Walmart can't do this alone. Like any big goal, Project Gigaton is going to be made of small steps, and it's engaging these companies, thousands of companies that make up its supply chain. Here, Laura talks about what's new about the Project Gigaton commitment. What's new is just our convening of um, all of our partners, bringing them all together, uh, talking about this, um, and really focusing on this um, in a way that, you know, is going to create a great moment of uh, accountability and action. And so I think just kind of our convening in the supply chain is, is one thing. Two is the Gigaton project itself. So um, Project Gigaton itself is, is a new platform. You know, it's built off of learnings we've had, but we haven't kind of put it all together this way and, and um and really looked at the impact all together of all of these activities as they relate to climate. We've been working on pieces of this, um, you know, as we've talked about, but we hadn't kind of packaged it all together into one program that made it easy, you know, for others to engage with us. And we hadn't shared it all. We hadn't shared all of the information before, as we talked about with that open source resource center. So that's new. And then finally, I think the other new thing is some new commitments. We're going to be making our suppliers we've been working with for many months um, are, are excited, and they will be making new commitments on, you know, on behalf of Project Gigaton this week. And I would tell you, um, they're really great commitments, and I think, uh, you know, I'm inspired by the actions that these leaders are taking in their own industries, um, and I think those details will come out later this week. Well, as they say, a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. This sounds like that step. Project Gigaton, Anya Hollemeiser, Associate Editor, thanks so much. Thanks, Joel. A couple of quick programming notes to add now. We've got a couple of exciting events and other initiatives underway for the next couple months that we would love to get your input on. First and foremost, we've just commenced voting for our Verge Hawaii Accelerate Startup Showcase, which will enable you to check out and vote on the best 60-second pitch videos from our 20 semi-finalists. Um, that will be open through April 30th, and will help determine who will pitch on the main stage at our Verge Hawaii event this June in Honolulu. And the Green Biz Intelligence Panel is also recruiting. It's a survey body that we pull regularly throughout the year on key trends and developments in sustainability. We'll add a link with a form to join. It's free. should take about two minutes uh, to the story notes for this episode. And it was also in this week's Green Biz Taking Care of Business newsletter, if you get that on Monday mornings. Uh, last but not least, nominations for our 2017 30 Under 30 are coming up in rapid order, and we're keen to cover all bases, any industry, any geography. If you are up-and-coming talent in sustainable business or you know someone who's an up-and-comer, we'd love to hear from you. To qualify, you can't have reached your 30th birthday after June 5th, 2017, uh, when we plan to publish your, this year's list, but please let us know with a brief submission form that we will link to in the episode notes if you would like to be on the list or nominate someone you know. Thank you, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find some of the things Lauren was just talking about and other links about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Thanks to podcast director, Soraya Malconian. 
You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. If you can't wait that long, go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find past episodes and uh, get to listen to those on demand. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 